You're listening to KCBS In-Depth. Everyone is facing these huge life-changing moments. The people, places, and issues the Bay Area is talking about. I think it really is important for folks to reach out to people so they can know that they're not alone. We don't know how long all this is going to go on for. And from an emotional standpoint, psychologically, that's a really difficult, difficult thing to grapple with. This is KCBS In-Depth. It's now been almost three weeks since Election Day, but the political tumult is not letting up, and the shockwaves are being felt all across the nation, including right here in the Bay Area. It's been a very difficult and challenging thing for me. You know, this past year has especially has been uh, very difficult on some relationships. It's really exhausting, honestly. I'm Keith Menconi. This is KCBS In-Depth, and today in the program, we're going to hear how this time of political divisiveness is impacting the lives of average Bay Area residents, and we'll also consider what could be done to bridge the gap. I think we have way too much divisiveness in our society. I would like to see everybody at least talk to each other, you know, not scream at each other. Having those tough conversations, reconnecting with neighbors, it might be what's needed right now. But with emotions running this high, it is going to be a tall order. So to help us out with some advice, we're welcoming back onto the program someone who has thought an awful lot about these challenges. That would be Eric Liu. He is the co-founder and CEO of Citizen University. It's a Seattle-based nonprofit working to foster civic engagement. Nonprofit organization that I run, Citizen University, we have a bunch of different programs around the country that are about trying to build a culture of powerful, responsible citizenship. Perhaps the best known of those programs, weekly meetup events called Civic Saturdays, which Liu describes as the civic analog to a faith gathering or a religious service. We're gathering in this way to challenge each other, to reflect with each other. And by being here, we are choosing not to succumb to the moral cynicism that has taken a hold of civic life. They're not church or mosque or synagogue, but they have the arc and the flow and the feel of such a gathering um, and are instead oriented around uh, what it takes to sustain our uh, collective belief Uh, that democracy can work. So rather than scripture, the readings draw on foundational American texts or literature. This is from Let Us Now Praise Famous Men by James Aggie, published in 1941. Human beings with the assistance... And rather than a hymn book, attendees are singing instead the tunes of classic Americana. It's a chance for community and also a chance to reflect on the values that bind us together as Americans. What does it mean to actually live out liberty and justice for all? How seriously do we take the idea that uh, uh, a government of the people, by the people, and for the people? And so to take these broad abstractions and these big elements of our national creed and boil them down to how do you live like a citizen wherever you are? How do you show up in civic life? So, that's Civic Saturday. And all of that is just to illustrate that when it comes to building up civic-minded community, Lou is in a class of his own. And that's the expertise that we're going to be drawing on for the conversation today. So uh, finally, starting that conversation now, I was curious, given everything that's been happening over the last few weeks, all the controversy surrounding the election, all this ill will, what's been coming up at Civic Saturday? I think there's a couple of common themes. 
Uh, one is simply this uh, belief that we've got to rehumanize our political and civic life. That doesn't mean necessarily come together, compromise, find agreement, um, but it does. it's the step that precedes that. And that is to stop demonizing, uh, stop treating people uh, as just a proxy for a set of talking points or a picture of the enemy, um, but actually see people as the complex, often contradictory uh, creatures that we all are. Um, and to rehumanize civic life is something that I think is best done um, in direct relationship. It, it, it's not easy to do that in a mediated way, whether watching people on TV or scrolling through your social media feed. Uh, it's about being in the company of others. And even during a pandemic, if that company has to be in a Zoom room or uh, socially distanced, so be it. But uh, it's recognizing that civic life and a, and a sense of rehumanizing civic life begins with relationship and, uh, um, and fellowship. All right. So relationship, fellowship, uh, that is the direction that we are going to be pointing towards in this conversation. But let's first take a few moments to reflect now on uh, the starting point. Um, that is where we are right now, because where we are right now is a very difficult political moment for many Bay Area residents. Uh, to get a better sense of that, actually, I've been uh, speaking to a number of them over the course of the last few days, uh, hearing about their own run-ins with that political divide, how uh, they're trying to navigate it. And uh, throughout the rest of the program, we're going to be hearing portions of those conversations, kind of share their experience and uh, illustrate some of the themes that we're going to be discussing today. Uh, and actually, we're going to start that right now, uh, speaking first with Lenin Umali, who says that for her, political strife is not just something on the television. No, it's not. It's very personal to me because a lot of my family members vote Republican. Over the course of this election cycle, Lenin, a liberal-leaning Oakland resident, has been butting heads with the conservative members of her extended family, some of whom are taking every chance they can get to let her know exactly how they feel about her politics. I get past hateful fake articles and memes painting the Democratic Party as evil, unchristian, and ungodly uh, quite often. Um, and it is very hard not to be angry. It was, it was getting to a point where they were forgetting that these are real people, human beings, their neighbors, you know, their own children are Democrats, and, and they're painting us as if we are this otherworldly alien that's bent on destroying America. Yeah, well, uh, I, I hear the frustration in your voice. Uh, I wonder, you know, as we move a little bit further away uh, from Election Day, are, are you seeing the possibility for better conversations, the possibility for a little bit of um, reconciliation? Oh, boy. <laughs> Personally, I don't know. I don't feel as if talking and understanding is an option, at least not right now. Still, just too difficult. And Lenin is not alone in this, actually spoken with a number of others who have strained family ties over election disputes as well. And we'll be hearing more of those conversations a little bit later in the program, also bringing in some more conservative perspectives as well. Um, uh, first up, though, I want to bring back into the conversation Eric Liu with Citizen University. So, Eric, I mean, really quite a moment that we're in right now, an angry, angry time. And I know a lot of other people are feeling similar to Lenin in that they're just not seeing a way forward, not seeing a light at the end of this tunnel. I mean, 
we should acknowledge on top of all this, the election itself is contested by the Trump campaign, though we have you know, not seen evidence stand up in court that's substantiating those uh, claims of widespread voter fraud. But nevertheless, uh, that's driving a lot of the anger on both sides of the political aisle as well. And um, you know, I think it's fair to say that for a lot of us, this really is a level of division that we simply have not lived through before. Uh, So wondering if you could give some historical perspective here. I know that you are a student of U.S. history. What would you point to as um, some of the precedents for what we're facing right now? We are in rarefied air right now. There haven't been too many other times in our country's life um, where we've had this uh, deep and pervasive a set of ideological uh, divisions. So the, the decade leading up to the Civil War um, is probably the worst uh, and, and, and most scary and well-known um, uh, example. Uh, but this is not exactly new either. Um, I think what is, what is new is that there are more people in the public square and able and willing to voice uh, their opinions now. Uh, the United States was super divided um, during the Jim Crow era. Um, and I don't mean just between white folks who wanted to sustain Jim Crow and white folks Um, who wanted to eliminate it. Uh, I mean, among all of the non-white people in the United States who were silenced and kept out of the public square and out of a political and civic debate, there was actual division then. It just wasn't always voiced and vocalized uh, and given space. Uh, And so again, I think there is, to a certain extent, um, something almost, (laughs) uh, I wouldn't say healthy, but uh, beneficial about the fact that we have this level of cacophony right now. It does mean that more people than ever before feel entitled uh, to have a voice in civic life. Uh, But I think that the thing that is dangerous about times like the period before the Civil War uh, or times like even the the, the height of the Civil Rights Movement, let, let, let us not forget the Civil Rights Movement today in American memory, we kind of sugarcoat it and we say, you know, and everybody celebrates Martin Luther King and, uh, and so forth. But uh, dur- during the uh, decade and a half that preceded the um, I Have a Dream the March on Washington, um, th- that was a long period in which um, Black activists and scholars and lawyers and citizens uh, were pushing for change through civil disobedience, through legal action. And most white folks didn't like it. Great majorities uh, of the American public, um, even in the at the height of the civil rights movement, thought that there was too much agitation, too much conflict, uh, and so forth. And so um, we've had periods of division. We've had periods of discomfort. Um, and what is distinctive and dangerous about this one um, is that it is weaponized and accelerated by our media and technology um, tools and habits. Um, and there is no time for rehumanization, no time for deliberation, unless we make the time. Uh, and that requires us to be intentional about it. Uh, and I think that is, that is a little scarier. And it's, you know, compared to uh, 60, 70 years ago, where there was at least some common agreement about facts. Uh, again, one of the downsides of democratization is uh, everybody can find their own story and everybody can find their own, quote, reality or truth. Uh, and that makes stitching together um, a, a common civic life that much harder. All right. Well, we're going to lean into some of those challenges right now. Uh, real quick, though, I want to remind listeners that this is KCBS In-Depth. I'm Keith Manconi. Today, we're speaking with Eric Liu, the co-founder of Citizen University, about what it's going to take to heal the political divide as election anger boils over across the country, as well as here in the Bay Area. 
I want to talk a little bit next about what exactly healing the divide would mean, uh, what we mean when we use these terms. Uh, Obviously, healing, national unity, these were big themes in President-elect Joe Biden's victory speech. But uh, I think it's fair to say that his call for unity is not always landing very well with uh, many Republicans. Uh, I've spoken with a number uh, here in the Bay Area who say, Uh, You know, when they hear this call, it sounds to them an awful lot like terms of surrender, you know, uh, unity on our terms, put aside uh, your values, your priorities. And I I guess all of that is just to say that there really is still deep disagreement about where to go next in this country. And um, if we're talking about unity, that is really going to complicate the picture here. So uh, let's get that complicated picture. And uh, to get it, We are going to return once again to my conversations with Bay Area residents about their election experiences. I have a lot more to get through through the course of the program. Uh, First up, we're going to be speaking now with San Jose resident Jason Shu. Now helpful for understanding Jason's political views, he tells me, those views have been shaped quite a bit by his experience as a Chinese-American immigrant. Correct. I'm coming from a socialist country, and uh, I experienced socialism firsthand. That's the reason I'm coming here. And it's also part of the reason why he cast his ballot for the Trump-Pence ticket this election cycle, and also why he says uh, he has a pretty easy time relating to the many Cuban-American and Venezuelan-American voters who did the same. You know, we don't want a socialism, if, uh, but the U.S. is our last stand. I identify with that sentiment. So, given the stark political divide that Chu sees, what's his take on the prospect for national unity? It's going to be hard. Um, I think that uh, it's really coming down to the value system. Um, what do you see American, America in five, ten years? You become a struggle between capitalist and socialist. So I don't see it's very hard to uh, co-mingle those two ideologies. And that was Jason Chu. Now, another reason that the calls for unity are falling flat for some Republicans, in their view, that call overlooks the stigma that liberal America has placed on conservatives, a stigma that John Dennis, chairman of the San Francisco Republican Party, says is still ongoing and impacting the lives of many here in the Bay Area. So it seems to be okay with most people that Republicans uh, should be under threat, physical and otherwise, career-wise, livelihood-wise. If you want to do a little journalistic exercise, put on a put on a on a MAGA cap and walk uh, walk down the streets in San Francisco. See how far you get before you you know before you get accosted, you know. And that, so let's set that aside for a second. Uh, if you're a conservative, would you be open about it in any tech company in the Bay Area? Any tech company? Uh, would you work? You know, would you be open in any company? And uh, I should just add that I spoke with more than one conservative who declined to go on the record for this program out of fear of workplace repercussions. So uh, clearly something on the mind of many conservative Bay Area residents. Uh, Switching to the other side of the aisle now, uh, of course, strongly held views there as well. So we're going to hear next from Cookie Rodolfi, a former law professor at Santa Clara University, who is running into some family strife of her own. It's been a very difficult and challenging thing for me because, you know, like many people, I have those, there are people in my family who are Trump supporters. In particular, she says, it's been especially difficult to accept the fact that her brother is a Trump supporter. For some reason, 
I have so much anger at my brother for doing this, um, and I don't want that. And why is it that uh, being a Trump supporter, why, why is that something that's um, so difficult for you to get past? Because it, 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 it mirrors our who we are in, in so many ways. I mean, I don't think all Trump supporters are terrible. Believe me, I don't. But, you know, for years I've known people who have, dif- have different views and have voted Republican. But the key tenets and values and and the destruction to other people and the racism and all of that is so hideous and insidious. I, it's never going to be acceptable to me. And that was Cookie Rodolfi. So just a few Bay Area residents there, but definitely a lot of deeply held political views that it doesn't sound like any of them are planning to change anytime soon. Uh, now, bringing Eric Liu with Citizen University back into the conversation once again, um, Eric, h- help us sort through this. You know, we're talking about reconciliation here. Uh, maybe a good place to start if you could uh, share your thoughts on what exactly that means when folks have such uh, different underlying values. I mean, on, on some level, does coming closer together, does unity, does that mean compromising on those values? Or is there another way to look at this? I think reconciliation does not mean consensus. Reconciliation does not mean one side must surrender to the other. Reconciliation does not mean uh, that there needs to be unanimity. Uh, I think reconciliation does mean uh, a, a willingness to embrace the pluralism and diversity of worldview and experience that is in fact um, our mass multiracial democratic republic. Uh, we, we are a complex society and we're trying to pull off something that no other society in, in the history of the world has pulled off, which is to sustain generation after generation, a mass, multiracial, multi-faith democratic republic. That's really hard to do. And you can only do it uh, if you uh, accept a certain amount of discomfort. Uh, And if you accept the fact that you are going to coexist with people who do see the world differently from you, who do have different uh, priorities and different values from you. Uh, And indeed, some people who don't like you. And I think that that doesn't mean that you have to like them uh, for not liking you, but it does mean that that you recognize that um, we live in a time and in a society where um, the goal um, is, number one, to rehumanize, uh, and number two, uh, to understand that everybody comes to every political argument um, with one particular voiced point of view, but then one incredibly complex and often contradictory unvoiced set of experiences and self-stories. And we've got to give each other room and grace for our actual complexity. And that brother and sister you're talking about, I mean, my goodness, they they know, I mean, sometimes it's the people you know best and have been closest to that you are least willing to see their complexity uh, uh, and your own. And you want to simplify them and reduce them down to an essential uh, evil or good, um, and and make yourself the hero of that uh, of that narrative. Uh, but I think whether you're talking about people you are blood related to or people you have never met but have but still feel perfectly free on social media um, to call an idiot or or, or worse, um, we've got to create space for the fact that we're not the monoliths that we seem to be when all we do is engage in national political rhetoric. That 
there are other ways in which we find common humanity and that the doing of stuff together, the solving of problems together, the, that brother and sister that you described there, uh, perhaps at some point they're gonna have to deal with an ailing parent. Perhaps one of them is gonna have an ailing child and the other is gonna be called to help upon them. Perhaps one of them is gonna have to figure out how they save um, their uh, family home from gentrification and destruction um, or, or whatever it might be. But there are common things that we've got to do and solve together beyond just, again, rehearsing the talking points that we're getting from our favorite cable news network. All right. Uh, finding common cause, perhaps helping us find a little bit more common understanding as well. Uh, here and there, more insights from Eric Liu with Citizen University, speaking with him once again about the rising tide of political divisiveness in the country and what to do about it. Uh, this is KCBS In-Depth, by the way. I'm Keith Menconi. We're also hearing this half hour from Bay Area residents about how they're navigating these fractious times in their own personal lives. I have just a couple more voices I want to bring into the conversation. And uh, this last topic that we're going to touch on, as it happens, is conversation. So we're going to be talking about talking and how to do a better job uh, speaking across the political divide. Uh, because it has been getting harder, I've been hearing from a lot of residents about just how difficult they feel it's become to discuss even mildly politically charged issues these days. Uh, among those residents is Tyler Wiest, uh, who says that for many years he had enjoyed discussing current events on Facebook. Uh, but recently, he says he's noticed an ugly change in tone. I get told, like, you're a tinfoil hat-wearing conspiracy theorist, you're, you're crazy... Uh, you're a far-right loon. Any idea I present gets labeled as some sort of conspiratorial idea or some idea that's like far-right, even if it just a few months ago it wouldn't have been. Tyler, who identifies as libertarian, believes the shift goes back to 2016. Like, I had open conversations with people quite often prior to 2016. And then after 2016, these open conversations, I love to have with people about shrinking government and isolationism uh, in terms of like no military intervention. These things, I, these conversations I would openly have all the time are now like being dismissed and I'm being ostracized for certain ideas, which prior to, again, prior to 2016 was, you know, open season. Tyler says he's lost hundreds of Facebook friends over the last few years as a result. Others, meantime, are worried about the strain social media is putting on their real-world friendships as well. I took a social media break, um, completely went off because I still want to keep most of my friends. That's and, Colleen Pizarro, um, and she, in many ways, has managed to bridge the political divide in her own life. Uh, she herself has strong progressive values, but also counts many conservatives as close friends. When it comes to social media, though, well, that's one place where she's just about given up on the prospect for constructive political dialogue. I realized very quickly early on that that was not a good idea. The few people where I attempted that, they would just yell louder and and it caused a real strain. So I just decided that it would be much easier to um, if I wanted to stay friends and I wanted to focus on why we were friends in the first place. And I wanted to stay focused on why we were friends in the first place. And so I just tried to avoid any situation where our friendship would be strained. 
Ultimately, though, she says, over the course of this election cycle, it seems that some friendships likely have been damaged beyond repair. So, Eric Liu uh, with Citizen University, turning back to you again, sounds like a lot of people really are struggling to hold the sorts of conversations that they would like to be holding. Um, And, uh, you know, wouldn't you know it, Thanksgiving is just around the corner. So this is definitely an issue that a whole lot of people are going to be confronting over the dining room table in uh, very short order. Uh, Help us out if you could. What advice can you give to our listeners as to uh, how to make these conversations a little bit more productive? Yeah, well, I I don't there's no easy sugarcoated answer to that. Um, uh, I I think that one of the um, most important things we've got to do is to um, hit pause on that cycle, that cycle either of consuming stuff off a social media feed that in most cases is monolithic just from your side, um, uh, where the other side is constantly being mocked or dehumanized or uh, dehumanized or turned into um, you know, a, a great existential threat. Um, you know, we've got a project going, um, a partnership of the Aspen Institute, Facing History and Ourselves, which is a great education nonprofit, uh, and Allstate, um, and it's called the Better Arguments Project. Um, and what the Better Arguments Project uh, begins with is a premise that argument is okay. America is an argument. We need to remember American civic life is meant to be perpetually contesting a whole bunch of ideals that are always in tension with each other. Liberty and equality are always in tension with each other. Too much liberty for you uh, means you start making equality for all harder. Too much emphasis on equality means you're gonna start limiting some people's liberty. Um, and how we strike those balances and where we, how we navigate those tensions uh, is always present in American life. Uh, pluribus and unum, the two parts of our national motto, diversity and unity um, are always in tension. Uh, colorblind versus color conscious views of public policy are always in tension with each other. So we're supposed to be arguing. And the point in American civic life isn't that we should have fewer arguments, Uh, we should just be having less stupid ones. And I don't mean that just to be a a glib laugh line. I think so much of the argumentation that we have in American civic life now is stupid because it is binary, dehumanizing, and just repeating what others have said. It's not a form of actually knowing your own mind and heart. Um, It's just re-adopting and regurgitating a point of view. So a better argument is one uh, that is uh, acknowledging history, uh, acknowledging that we just we didn't just get born yesterday into this condition, uh, uh, but that there are things that happened in this country that preceded uh, this moment that we have to take into account that lead people to have the point of view and the worldview they have. A better argument is more emotionally intelligent. Uh, and so recognizing your own buttons that get pushed uh, and the ways that you're uh, maybe unintentionally pushing other people's buttons. And a better argument is also honest about power. And the fact that we often come into arguments uh, either in or representing different power positions in society, and we got to be real about that. Uh, And I think one of the first and highest principles of a better argument is you've got to be willing, and I think this is quite possible in a family setting and over Thanksgiving dinner, perhaps. um, If you take winning off the table, a lot of things become possible. And that may sound counterintuitive, like isn't the whole point of an argument to win? No, if you say that I'm gonna enter into this argument not to win, but to understand, you completely change the energy. And I'm not here to own you, to shame you, to ridicule you. I'm here to truly understand, like how is it that you have this point of view? We're blood, we're kin. 
we, we grew up with the same matriarch or patriarch in our family. Um, what shaped you differently from what shaped me? I really want to know. And, and you've got to be sincere in that, not trying to play gotcha or lay a trap to, to then pounce on somebody, uh, but to truly understand. And when you do that, um, I'm not saying that will lead all the time to happiness and light, but what it will do is give the other person permission to reciprocate and to let down a bit of their armor and say, well, I actually want to understand you and not just try to own you or win their side of the argument. And I think um, that is at least one starting place uh, that we can have. And what we have right now, unfortunately, at every scale of American argument and civic life, whether it's uh, relationship and family um, or in community or just nationally across party lines, um, is we're not trying to understand each other. Uh, we're just yelling at images of each other um, and that is, uh, well, that's brought us exactly what we have right now. We only have a, a couple of minutes left in our conversation, but uh, for the last question, I'm, I'm wondering if we could get just a little bit more forward-looking and get your take on what a national program of reconciliation might look like, you know, reconciliation, uh, coming together, unity, whatever you want to call it. Uh, wh- what do you think that will take? And um, uh, maybe looking at it from a local perspective as well, you know, if there's any listeners out there that are thinking to themselves, um, what could I do to help bridge some of these divides? What could I do to help bring some of my neighbors a little bit closer together? What thoughts, what advice would you want to leave them with today? You know, I think um, my instinct is not to have, whether locally or nationally, a big campaign around uh, reconciliation. Uh, I I would like to, if, if reconciliation can be gotten, let it be achieved um, through another means, which is I'd rather have a campaign and a big focus on responsibility. In San Francisco, I would want everybody who lives in the Bay Area to ask themselves, what is my responsibility for making this a better, more thriving, more inclusive community for everybody? Whether I'm uh, a young person, uh, whether I'm an older person, whether I'm housed or unhoused, uh, whether I'm educated highly or not, uh, uh, wh- whether I am, uh, whatever my background might be, um, what is my responsibility? Given where I sit and where I stand, what can I do? How can I be useful right now? We live in a society right now across red and blue divides where too few people ask the question, how can I be useful? And too many people focus on what I should be getting, what I expect as a matter of rights, um, and what I want to be heard saying. And that's as true among liberals as it is among conservatives right now. Uh, and I think across, that, uh, across the board, we've got to rekindle a culture of responsibility taking. Um, and that begins locally. How do you take responsibility uh, for your neighborhood in San Francisco? How do you take responsibility for your part of Oakland? How do you take responsibility um, for, uh, and, and, and that's not an abstract thing. That's do you know your neighbor? That's do you know the name of the, unhoused family uh, you see over and over again uh, in the van or um, on the street corner? Do you, do you take responsibility for the fact that um, longtime residents can no longer afford to live here? Uh, what do you do as a matter of not just individual charity or service or volunteerism, uh, but in terms of activating your power and other people's power to make collective um, systems level change uh, that can be useful uh, for all? Responsibility taking if we all started taking more responsibility, the reconciliation, I think, will follow uh, because we recognize that we are uh, 
we are the ones who are gonna save us. Uh, no president or no new president uh, is going to save us uh, and fix our politics or heal our culture. Uh, that's only gonna come when you and I, where we are in the place that we're rooted, decide I'm gonna take a little more responsibility now. All right, well, an awful lot to reflect on there ahead of the Thanksgiving holiday. Uh, we are going to round things out right there, though. We have been speaking to Eric Liu with Citizen University. You can learn more about their work on their website at citizenuniversity.us. Eric Liu, thank you very much for being on KCBS In-Depth. Really appreciate it. Keith, thanks so much for having me, and uh, great to talk to you as always. And thank you all for listening. Also want to give a big thanks this week to the many residents who spoke with me for this program. Uh, just really good hearing the uh, diversity of views that are out there and uh, really enjoyed all those conversations. So uh, thank you all very much for your time as well. A great experience. Uh, signing off for KCBS and In-Depth, I'm Keith Menconi. Stay safe, be well. We'll see you next week. Thank you so much. You've been listening to KCBS In-Depth. Get every episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other podcast platforms. Visit kcbsradio.com for more news and interviews. We are the Bay Area's news station, KCBS.